Well, I offer my good morning to you as well. And uh, interesting conversations in the hallway a little bit. And one of the things a teacher is always supposed to do is to remove distractions that would hinder the lesson. I know all of you are wondering what is under my jacket, so I'm going to remove it. <laughs> so that will not distract you. I will tell you this, I, I am known as being fashionably challenged. I accept that. Um, on my wedding day, get this, on my wedding day, in the reception line, my mom says to my wife, I am so glad somebody's gonna help him dress. <laughs> and since then, when I would get ready to leave in the morning, I would come out and my beautiful wife would look at me and say, are you going to wear that today? And I would say, nope, just checking to see if you're still on board. So we've got that. Um, <clears throat> this morning, what I would like to do, we're going to look at Micah. Micah is a prophet who is speaking to the nation of Israel and Judah. They have embraced the idea that what God has given them, what God has told them is irrelevant to how they live their life. We can actually take some application from that. God has given us his truth. God has spoken to us. And do we make it relevant in the way we live our life. It's often called a, a worldview. Um, we have an idea of what truth is. We have an idea of who God is. We have an idea of what is right and what is wrong. And that view that we have tends to be the lens by which we evaluate our world and make our decisions. And for Israel and Judah at the time, their worldview had adjusted and been compromised to where Micah felt it important to confront them. I had a video I was gonna show you today and it didn't quite get on the, the docket, so <clears throat> I'm going to give an attempt to describe this video. Um, I will expect courtesy laughs from you um, because if you don't, no, we're fine with that. I used to tell my students that. If I tell them a joke that they don't understand and they don't think it's funny, just give me a courtesy laugh. It helps me continue on. So if you feel so led for courtesy laughs, that would be acceptable. Anyway, this video, and, and you can find it on YouTube. Um, I would ask you not to do that right now, but you can find it on YouTube. If you just put in young boy and cocoa powder, you, you'll find this video, and some of you may have seen it. But the image is, is really good. <clears throat> There's a mom who's decided to videotape her three, four-year-old son who has seen a container of cocoa powder and believes that it's chocolate. He's convinced it's chocolate, and he wants to taste it. He wants to try it. And she has attempted to try to tell him it's not what you think it is. It's not chocolate, it's not gonna taste good, but he is determined that he's gonna taste that. So finally, she's videotaping this. In the video, she's sitting there and she explains that he wants to taste it. I've tried to tell him, he's ignoring what I'm saying. <clears throat> and she's decided I'm going to let him experience his choice. He takes a spoonful of cocoa powder, takes a bite of it thinking it's chocolate and his facial expression immediately is the realization that what he thought it was and what it is was two different things. But you can see him in his stubbornness, he's trying not to spit it out, he's trying to hold on to it. <clears throat> and finally she says to him, you can spit it out if you want and he has, a <clears throat> he has a little cough. And when he coughs, this little cloud of cocoa powder <laughs> comes out of his mouth. 
And then finally he succumbs to it and he starts crying and, and that's the end of the video. <clears throat> the reason I share that with you is simply this, that he was in the presence of somebody who knew the truth. That person was telling him what was true. In his, in his view, he chose to reject that truth and insert his own. And then the reality of his decision became aware. He had a view. He had a, a view of that situation. And I'm sure you can see the connection there. When you think about worldviews or biblical worldviews, we understand that there is truth. And by the way, there is truth. All of us know there's truth. And anybody you speak to will have some idea of what truth is. They will have some standard by which they evaluate the world they live in. And that standard may or may not be accurate to the reality of truth. Let me give you an example. If a person were to say to you that in they view the world, that gravity does not exist. It just doesn't exist. And they live their life as if gravity doesn't exist. They come to the Empire State Building, they come to the edge and they declare, I don't believe in gravity. And they step off. And as they're descending, they continue to declare, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't exist. My view of life declares this is true. And I'm living according to that principle. We all know that there's a point in time in which their declaration meets reality. As the earth becomes the point in which that truth is challenged. As we begin to look at Micah, what I want to say to you is this. As we have our worldview, for those of you who may, uh, listening online or in here, who may at some point have not come to the understanding of God's existence and his truth, and you declare he doesn't exist, there will be a point in time in which that reality, that statement will meet reality. And if you haven't accepted Christ, please understand that the truth of his word tells us that there's no way for us to come into the presence of God except through his son, that our sin, because of our sin, we will be rejected from his presence, but through Christ's sacrifice, we can be accepted into his presence. And that acceptance is based on our belief and acceptance of the gift of his son. And once that acceptance occurs and we accept Christ and his sacrifice, then heaven becomes our home. We then can come into the presence of God. So we're going to look at Micah 6, 8. And uh, I'm, I'm coming at it from the point of view that I would like us to think about our worldview. What are our ideals? What do we declare is true? What do we declare is good? What is true? What is good? What is beautiful? Because I will propose to you that whatever definition you give those, whatever they are, is going to determine the choices you make and how you live your life. It did for Israel. It did for the boy with cocoa powder. And it did for the person who doesn't believe in gravity. So let's look at that. I'd like to read verses one through eight out of chapter six in Micah. And uh, would you again stand as we read God's word, just in recognition of, of that. Micah six, one through eight. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. 
Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and how Shedem and Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my, bright, my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you. Be seated. I've got a couple preliminary comments that I'd like to make before we get into the text. One of those is recognizing that a worldview only applies while you're on earth. Last week we talked about 2 Peter and how Peter tells us the epigenosis, you have the knowledge, it's accurate, it's true, and those that present to you the idea that there's a deeper level of spirituality that you can attain if you will follow their ways. And so you have last week this idea of epigenosis, the knowledge of that, and that God has given you everything that you need to live a vibrant, godly life, and that your responsibility is to give every effort to come alongside in that process. In Micah, what we have is a group that has become rebellious. In other words, they have the truth, it's been given to them, they know who God is, and yet they've decided it's irrelevant to the way they choose to live. So first off, a worldview applies from the point of birth until death. And for Christians, what we find in the text is that these verses apply to when we come to know God and then when he takes us home just like last week. So my encouragement to you is what I'm gonna cover is again along those lines is how do we look at life? What is that worldview that I have? And from what I know to be true, is it being applied? Does it make a difference in how I live my life? Secondly, you can't have rebellion unless there's a standard. There has to be some standard that has been set and said is true before you can rebel against it. So the fact that the nation of Israel recognizes they're in rebellion means that they understand there's a standard to which they are not meeting. So the author is Micah. Uh, his name means who is like God. And I thought I'd give you a historical context because oftentimes when you read the scriptures, it should be asked in your mind, why now, why is Micah feeling the need to make this statement now to the nation of Israel? What, what is going on with them? And to understand Micah's interest in this statement, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context of the nation of Israel. It gives us context as to why he needs to speak this at this time. Now, the nation of Israel started out with prophets who led them, and then they wanted a king. And God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. I'm the king, but they want an earthly king. 
And Samuel warns them, if you get a king, he's going to tax you, he's going to take your children into his service, he's going to take you to war. Basically, Samuel's saying, you really don't want a king, it's not your best choice. But the Israel, the nation of Israel wanted a king, so God gave them a king, and it was Saul. They then had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and we're coming to the end of Solomon's life, and he dies, and then Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. And he goes to the north. And by the way, Jeroboam has fled to exile in Egypt. So he, I'd like that. Good. Excited on it. That's great. So Rehoboam now travels north and he meets with all the nation of of Israel because now he is going to be king of the nation of Israel. And the people come to Rehoboam and they say, Rehoboam, your father taxed us. He laid a heavy burden on us. We need to be relieved. Sounds familiar. We need, anyway, we need to be relieved from this heavy burden. The text tells us that Rehoboam met with the elders and they counseled him to, if if he would lighten the burden of the people of Israel, they would follow him. But if he didn't, he would have trouble. It then says, he went to the other princes, people of his age, teenagers, and he asked them, what do you think I should do? And they said, oh, get more. Lay a heavier burden. That will show them that you're better than your dad. Well, Rehoboam listens to their counsel and he comes back to the people of Israel and he lays a heavier burden on them and they revolt. And basically, Rehoboam has to flee for his life back to Jerusalem. And Jeroboam now comes out of Egypt and he becomes the leader of the northern tribes. This is how the nation of Israel got divided, the divided kingdom. So Rehoboam is in the south, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, and all the other 10 tribes are in the north. And Jeroboam sets a capital up in the north. Rehoboam decides he's gonna go destroy him so that he can own the whole nation. And God tells him, no, these are your brothers. These are your kindred spirit. These are your kin. You can't go to war with them. And so now the kingdom is divided. But what really occurs is Jeroboam and Rehoboam don't follow what God has asked them to do. They blend in the idols of the area. They blend in the idolatry. Some even start following Molech. You have child sacrifices. And there's this idea that the God, the sovereign God who delivered them is now equal to the other idols that they now live with. He no longer had a prominent place. Their worldview had changed that God was no longer sovereign. He was merely one among many. And then their lifestyle changed because of that view. Specifically, Micah in the text, if you read uh, in previous elements, what he was bringing to their attention was scales that were changed to benefit the seller. In other words, if you were to buy a pound of meat, the person in the market would change the scale so that it wasn't literally a pound. And so he had this dishonest relationship among them. In one of the texts, it clearly says basically that what was good, you now call evil, and what was evil, you now call good. A complete paradigm shift in their worldview. What they knew about God was now irrelevant to how they live their life. 
So that's the stage behind which Micah is speaking here. The other thought that came to mind, I'll just share this with you, two, two stories that came to mind when I was looking at this, when I was thinking of worldview and I was thinking of what the nation of Israel had done. One of them was that I had a student named David. And in our school, when we would teach apologetics, we would make two presuppositions depending on the course. One of them, when we were looking at how do you have an argument from logic for the existence of God, we, made the, we didn't make the assumption that God exists. We didn't start there. We said, can we know of a God through logic and through what we see? The second half of the course was we're gonna make two presuppositions, one that God does exist and that he has spoken. And then we said, if those two presuppositions are true, then we need to search out what has God said. And so David, this day, he, was, he was a really interesting student. He was so forgetful that he partnered with a classmate to bring his books to class for him. And I, I smiled each day because as they would come in, he would sit down, his partner would sit next to him, and his partner would open his backpack, pull a book out, open it up to the page, and set it in front of him. Then he would get paper out, set it next to him, and then he would hand him a pen. At the end of class, he would collect the pen and the paper and put it back in his backpack because David knew if he tried to walk out, he would lose it somewhere. So his partner in there. So this one day I was in class, I was trying to make, uh, begin the class by restating our presuppositions, kind of the foundation of what we were working on. And I said, so David, what are the two presuppositions that we're making in our class? And he said, that God exists. And you could tell he started trying to remember the second one. It wasn't coming. And so finally he says, oh, and the second one is, I'm not him. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's a good starting point. God exists and I'm not him. All right, David, we'll move on from there. The other one that came to mind uh, was, here the nation of Israel had the truth. God had given it to them. They had made it irrelevant and they were living a life that was meshing with the world around them. What God had given them wasn't as important, and so they began to look at, at where else they could go. Scotty Clark, uh, at a camp called Twin Rocks, and that's in August of 1968, that's when I came to know the Lord. And in this meeting he was talking about, he said, <clears throat> he told us, he said, look, think of it as God is on the throne in the center of a circle. He's there. And then we draw a circle around the throne. And then we decide that everything outside that circle I can't do, but everything inside the circle I can get away with. I can still be called a Christian, but I can act this way. I can still do this and still be called. So it's the idea of the center is really the apex of, of what the life should be, and I draw a circle. And he just challenged us. He said, most of us try to live as close to the edge as we possibly can. We get out to that edge and we're like, okay, I'm okay, oh, I gotta come back. And we try to manage that. And what Israel did, in my opinion, what Israel did is they created a system by which they kept getting close to the edge. <clears throat> and instead of attempting to stay inside the circle, they began to become content being outside the circle, but just not too far away. And so the challenge that I would give to you as we're looking at Micah is the fact that, as Scotty Clark challenged us, he said, if in your worldview is your goal to live as close to the edge of the circle or is it to live as close to the center as you possibly can? 
He says, if your goal is to live as close to God, he said, what would happen if we turned our back on that and started striving to try to get to the center? So here's Micah. Let's look at the text now with me, if you will. In verses one through five, basically, God is calling Israel out for their actions. It's as if a trial is gonna take place and God is calling them, I have an indictment against you, come, I want to hear your case, but notice who the jury is. The mountains, the foundations of the earth. Basically, Micah is saying, God is saying from the creation of the earth and all that is here that has witnessed everything that I've done, I want you to plead your case before them. And so they're pleading their case and, he, and then he not only gives them that information, but he also says to them, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. If you've ever been in a situation in which you are falsely accused of contributing to the actions of your children, meaning they blame you, and you go, what did I ever do? Or that indication that your actions in some way caused them to do what they did, the idea of it's not my fault, it's your fault. Maybe Israel is looking at God and saying, your word, your truth is too high for us. You, you wear us out with it. It's not my fault, it's your fault. By the way, we can go back clear to the Garden of Eden and see that, right? When God confronted Eve about the fruit or Adam about the fruit, what did Adam? God, it's the woman you gave me. So we have this ability to deflect responsibility. It, it just appears in here that God is saying to them, what case do you have against me? What have I done to you to have this be the way you live your life? What have I done to you that has wearied you, that has made you tired of following me? And it's really a hypothetical question in one sense because there really is nothing that God has done to do that. And then he goes on in the next few verses, he tells them what he has done. And he draws their attention to, to three specific things. One is he draws their attention to the fact that that he saved them from slavery. He brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He delivered them. He's their deliverer. Secondly, he provided them with leadership in Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Civil leadership and spiritual leadership. I, I, I brought you out of slavery and I gave you leaders so that you would become a nation. And then lastly, he draws attention to Balaam and Balak. If you remember that story, it's quite interesting because Balak is going to be conquered by the nation of Israel as they enter the land and Balak sends for a prophet, Balaam, because he wants Balaam to curse them because he believes that's his only hope of survival. Balaam, when Balak sends the envoys, Balaam says, I will seek what the Lord says and he does, and he comes back and says, I cannot, God will not allow me to curse them. Doesn't satisfy Balak, the king. He keeps pressing. Finally, Balak comes, I mean, Balaam comes down, and Balaam evidently is planning on trying to abide by the king's command, 
And that's the story, if you remember in, in your Sunday school days, that's the story where the donkey talks to him. I mean, it's amazing enough that the donkey will not go forward, but the fact that the donkey talks to him would be pretty convincing to me. But the king still doesn't satisfy, and so he brings him on a mountaintop overlooking the nation of Israel, and he says, now curse them, and Balak speaks a blessing on them. Balak gets upset. Well, let's try another hill. So he takes him to another hill where he can see him, and he says, now do it, and he blesses them. And so what uh, Micah's bringing their attention is, even when the world tried to curse you, I blocked it from Balaam. He could not speak a curse on the nation of Israel. And so in this charge that has been given, they're called out because he has provided everything for them. He's, he's given them. He says, what did, how have I done this to cause you to live this way? And he gives the examples. And then in verses uh, six and seven, it's, it's the response. Now, we don't know from the text if these statements that uh, Micah makes is directly from the individuals or not, but it seems that he is actually citing what they probably would have said if they recognized their sinful state, their rebellious state. I wondered when I read the text if it's more out of, if it was from a contrite heart or if it was an art, you know, when you, when you talk to somebody and you get so frustrated in a conversation that finally you just want it to end and you just say to the person, okay, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do. You want me to do this? You want me to do this? You want, what is it you need me to do? And we recognize that response has no heart change. That response is merely taking my physical abilities and trying to say, what can I do physically to appease you? And in the context of history here, it would not have been uncommon for them to think that the gods would be appeased by physical acts that they did. I mean, even to the point of, of offering their children to gain favor with the gods. I tend to look at this and kind of feel like it's not from a contrite heart. It's not from a position of really desiring to be connected to God. It's more from a position of saying, what can I do to make you happy? What do you want me to do? And what do they offer? If we look at the text, what they offer is basically three things. They, one of them is, do you, do you want us to give you burnt offerings with yearling calves? And if you were to look in the Old Testament, the yearling calves would have been the choicest of sacrifices. So you, basically, do you want me to give you the best sacrifice that I can? The next one they offer is, uh, do you want thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? So first you have the quality of the sacrifice, the offering, and then you have the quantity. Do you want the best or do you want a lot? And then the last one that they offer is, do you want me to present my firstborn to you? So it's not only do, they, do you want the quality, do you want the quantity, or do you want something that's really dear to me? Which of these physical acts can I offer that will appease you, that will atone for my rebellious acts? So I don't know that the individuals really had a contrite heart when they came or whether Micah was portraying the heart of the people. But I think based on what we know historically from that time frame and what else is in the text, that the heart issue for the nation of Israel 
wasn't right. And they merely were looking at actions that they could do to atone. And that's the setup for verse 6-8. Verse 6-8 is, is one, when you come to forming a worldview, when you come to understanding what is important, uh, it kind of sets the stage. He says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? If we just look at that, a few things, he makes a declaration that what God desires from them he has shown you what that is. It isn't hidden. It's there. He has shown you. My mind went to Romans when Paul is writing to the church in Rome in chapter one and he's making this defense of the gospel and he starts out with the fact and makes the statement that the heavens declare the glory of God. That you can see through what he has created, his attributes and his divine nature with the conclusion, man is without excuse. There is no point in which man can stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. It's known, he's shown it. One of the elements out of that Romans passage, which I would always draw my students' attention to, it says, this knowledge that he has made known is suppressed in ungodliness. And what I want you to recognize is that word suppress, it cannot exist unless the knowledge is present. You can't suppress something you don't possess. It's impossible. I can only suppress what is present. And in Paul's argument, he says, this truth of God existing is evident by what he has made, but then he also makes the statement, it's evident within them. By God's design and his creation, we've been created in his image, which means there's an internal understanding that I have a creator, that he does exist. And that I can suppress in ungodliness or deny it, just like I can deny gravity, but it's there. Mankind as a creation of God can deny he exists, but it's there. And so when, in Micah, when he says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good, he's declaring again that he has made himself known and you know what to do. I, I, you ever seen those movies where somebody's wrestling with what to do that's right? Oh, should I do this? Should I do that? What can I, uh, and somebody comes in and saves the day by looking him in the eye and saying, you know what you gotta do. And of course they go, yeah, I know what I gotta do. It's the same thing here. He's shown you, oh man, what is good. He's made it known to you. Now, I will admit to you that when I got to try to understand good, that's a little difficult. When I sat down, I, you, can you define good? We tend to know what it is, but trying to define what is good is tough. To give it words that would accurately depict what good is. Now, I can know what a good coffee, a good cup of coffee is. I got that down. I can define that. So when I think about, when I say something is good, what am I communicating? By the way, I just wanna let you know that a good cup of coffee has to be made with filtered water. If you didn't know that, it's revolutionary. I was tested on this by my staff once because they said, you can't taste the difference. I said, yes, I can. And they tricked me one day and put non-filtered water in a cup of coffee. 
and I tasted it. They were amazed. Anyway, that was a side note. But when I look at a cup of coffee and I taste it, what is it that is in my expression saying, oh, that's a good cup of coffee? Basically, it's that I have a standard to which I want that coffee to attain to. I want the pleasure of the taste to meet a certain standard. And when I taste it and it meets that standard, what do I say? That's a good cup of coffee. If we go to creation, the word used for good here is the same word used in Genesis when God is creating the world and he finishes a day and he takes a moment to look at what he's done and he says, it is good. What is he communicating? It's beautiful. It met all the standards that I wanted it to meet. When an artist paints a picture and they step back and look at it, they go, now that's good because it's an expression and it meets the standard of what they wanted. So when he says he has shown you, O man, what is good, basically he's made known to us what is pleasing to him, what is right, what meets his standard, what is considered beautiful. So he's made that known to them. He's revealed it to them. And then it says, and what the Lord requires of you. As an educator, when you talk about suggestions versus requirements, I always come back to the uniform code at my schools. The staff believed the uniform code was a requirement. The students believed it was a suggestion. And every day we had to address a student who decided you really didn't mean that. I'm also amazed at students that when you set a standard, an adolescent, when you set a standard, they simply want to do something different. I don't know why. They just want to do different. Whatever the standard is, no matter where that line gets drawn, adolescents tend to say, whatever you're saying, I want to be independent, so I'll show it by going against whatever that standard is. Maybe not just adolescents. Maybe that would be something we all might recognize. And so here you have, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And then he gives us three statements. The first one I'm gonna call internal. It says to act justly. If God has shown you what is good and what he requires of you, then it affects, and you believe in that, then it affects what you do. And it's a simple statement. There's a standard set and God says, I'm asking you to follow it. In Deuteronomy, when God gives them the law, he makes the statement to them, I'm expecting you to do this. And then he has a quality. He says, because this is good for you. This will be beneficial to you. The third one, he says, love kindness. That word love there is the loyal love. And he's basically saying love kindness. I found myself thinking about what, if I love something, how do I act? If I love someone, how does that impact me? And I, I concluded that when I love someone, I want to be around them. I want to be connected to them. When I'm away from them, I miss them and I want to embrace them. And I thought, okay. When he says love kindness, love mercy, I want to be around it. I want to embrace it. I want to be connected to it. And when it's missing, I miss it. So in the worldview here, it's act justly. God set a standard, do it. And then it says, love, be loyal, 
to kindness, loyal to mercy. By the way, kindness and mercy cannot exist without somebody else present. I know we talk about being merciful to ourselves and so forth, but really the context of this is, this is related to external. This is related to my connection to other people and how I treat them. That I'm to be in love with kindness. I'm to be loyal to mercy in my connection with others. And then the last one is where he says, walk humbly with your God. And so it affects who we worship. Humbleness is simply the opposite of arrogance. And I'll simply draw you back to the statement that David made in my class, which is the foundation of this walk. When he concluded, God exists and I'm not him. God in his rightful place, looking to God with reverence. Our worldview will impact what we do, who we love, and who we worship. That's what Micah 6.8 is drawing. Our worldview can be in line with God's goodness, what he's shown us by choosing to do what is right, loving kindness and mercy as we act toward others, and humbly walking step by step each day, recognizing God does exist and I'm not him. And my walk, if I can extend it a little bit, my walk in the illustration I gave you earlier of the circle, my walk is not from the center toward the edge to try to live there. My walk is toward the God who created me and it's toward the center to connect with him even more. Let me close this in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, your words uh, are good. And while we or I may have difficulty defining those words, while I may have difficulty fully understanding them, I pray that you would give me a view of the world I live in until you return where I will act justly and I will love mercy and I will walk humbly with you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.